Hi, I'm Cam. And I'm Dev. And you're listening to Criminalish, a true crime podcast where two best friends trade stories ranging from the wild and wacky to the downright messed up. Do you love listening to the Criminal-ish podcast? Want to hear more from Cam and Dev? Then consider becoming a subscriber for $2.99 a month. Subscribers will have exclusive access to minisodes, Dev and Cam's live reactions to crime shows and documentaries, as well as early access to any multi-part episodes and so much more. Click the link in the description if you're interested in subscribing. See y'all in Cell Block C. So... Before we get into today's story, as always, what you drinking, friend? I am actually just drinking some water and I have a metal bottle this time because my friend actually called me to flame us for having plastic bottles last week. So (laughs) so I have my H2O in a metal bottle this time. What about you, friend? I have I have some tea. I have some tea and your friend is totally right. (laughs) We should be having water bottles. I've been neglecting getting an actual water pitcher for my fridge. And so I just have a bunch of water bottles, but they are right. We should be using reusable containers for our water. Thank you, friend, for keeping us in check. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So, Dev, today I will be telling you about the Ewell family murders. Have you heard about this case? I don't think so. I don't think so. But I do have a little bit of an extreme fascination with family annihilators. So there's a possibility I may have heard it and just don't remember the name. Well, let me know if it does come to you while I'm telling you the story. But I definitely think that this one is going to be an interesting story just because there are so many twists and turns and all around it's just a wild case in terms of trigger warnings there actually aren't really any for this case however if any do come up we will go back and add them in the show description so let's get started dale ewell was born in 1932 during the great depression he was the second oldest of five children one girl four boys. And their father always taught them that nothing was given to them and they had to work hard for everything they wanted. Having been born in the Great Depression, his family had enough to eat because they lived and worked on a farm, but there was little extra to buy more material things and things that might have made their lives a little bit easier. Dale and his brothers were all very competitive and were also taught by their father not to trust strangers. They were known to take a do whatever it took kind of attitude to get what they want. And this actually caused a little bit of friction with the people in the town that they grew up in because those people didn't really see them as trustworthy and saw them as just willing to do anything to anyone if it meant that they came out on top. 
But after the beginning of World War II, Dale became fascinated with flight. And even though flying to us now is pretty standard, pretty common, we don't really ask any questions about it. Right after World War II, this was a new technology and not many people had been on planes. And with that, not many people knew how to fly planes. So Dale actually went to Miami University in 1950 and majored in aeronautical engineering to learn the ins and outs of planes, but he also wanted to learn to fly and learn to be a pilot. When he graduated in 1954, he joined the Air Force, and this is where he actually learned how to fly. And he was so good at flying that he got the opportunity to fly high-ranking officials even when he was still young and early in his military career. At the age of 25, Dale met his future wife, Glee. And Glee's upbringing was very different from Dale's. She grew up in a very upper-class family in Chicago. And in contrast to Dale, who was known to be a bit abrasive, cold to strangers, Glee was always described as someone who was friendly and social. She ended up going to college at the University of Arizona, and she ended up graduating in 1957. While Glee was still in Arizona, Dale took a job in Long Beach, California, while Glee stayed in Arizona to attend grad school. This was while they were still dating, so they were not married yet. Glee actually ended up taking a job with the CIA for two years and worked as an interpreter in Argentina. She always wanted to travel the world, so this was perfect for her. In 1961, Glee returned to the U.S. and she and Dale got married. Dale took a position in Fresno, California, selling airplanes. And this actually worked out really well for Dale. Most of his customers were farmers, which meant that he could connect with them on that level, having grown up on a farm. One of his sales tactics was to fly to potential customers instead of waiting for them to come to him. And while he was there, he would also offer them flying lessons at an additional charge. Just one sale could bring Dale a $10,000 commission. And this is when Dale really started to build up his wealth. And this is $10,000 in the early 1960s, correct? Yes. So even more now, probably what, 25, 30? Easily. That's money. That's a lot of money. Exactly. At this point, he just has his wife, no kids. Yeah, I know they were living good. Comfortable. So soon after this, Dale's three brothers also moved to Fresno and they started their own businesses. Just like in their old town, when they moved to Fresno, they were known as competitive, hard-headed businessmen. So while Dale had a great relationship with his wife, he and his brothers were known as cold and cutthroat. So in 1967, Glee gave birth to their first daughter, Tiffany, and in 1971, she gave birth to their son, Dana Ewell. In 1971, the FBI arrested Dale's boss and charged him with using his plane to smuggle marijuana from Mexico. Honestly, my only question is, how much marijuana are you smuggling on the plane? You know, was it enough to share? Was Dale getting a cut? You know, just just, just logistics, just the logistics of it all. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they were smuggling pounds. For sure. But it doesn't seem like Dale was involved in this. However, because of his boss being arrested, he was afraid for his job security. 
And because his boss was arrested for drug smuggling, he was also afraid for the safety of his family. So Dale bought a nine millimeter gun and ammo and kept it in the house for safety. So in 1972, Dale's boss was convicted and Dale was actually called shortly after this by the owners of the airplane business. So Dale's boss owned a franchise and he was called by the company that owned all the franchises. And the company offered him the opportunity to take over the franchise from his boss. So Dale was already doing a great job as a salesman. And as the primary dealer, his commissions were even higher. So his business really took off throughout the 70s and 80s, and he just continued to build and build his wealth. Truly a self-made man. And his wife, Glee, was now a stay-at-home mom, and she would shower her two children, Tiffany and Dale, with affection and also with whatever possessions they wanted. So a little bit more on the children. Tiffany Yule, as of 1992, was 24 years old and was in graduate school studying accounting. Dana Yule was 21 years old and was a business major at Santa Clara University. So all of this background brings us to Easter weekend of 1992, when the Yule family was spending the weekend at Pajaro Dunes, which was about two and a half hours away from Fresno. The family had a beach house there, and they'd actually planned to meet Dana's girlfriend, Monica Zint, and her family while they were at the beach house. Monica's father, just to note, was also an FBI agent named John Zent. So that weekend, Glee and Tiffany drove down Thursday afternoon, and Dale flew in on one of his planes Friday. On Saturday evening, Dana and Monica and Monica's parents drove down. They all had dinner with the Yules, but Monica's family felt like the Yule parents were not that impressed with their daughter. In the car, they even said that they thought Dale didn't think Monica was good enough for his son. But honestly, hearing about how Dale was with strangers, it's unclear if he actually was unimpressed or if this was just how he was. So that Sunday, Dana left the beach house alone to drive to the Zint house and have Easter dinner with them. Dale then drove to the nearby airport and was going to fly back to Fresno. Glee and Tiffany drove home together. Glee and Tiffany get home first and they are bringing in a cooler as well as some suitcases from the beach house. They are barely inside of the house when Tiffany is shot point blank. Glee tries to run away, but the killer catches up with her and shoots her three times. Two in the back and one in the face. So Glee and Tiffany arrived at the house around five and Dale had actually landed at 4 p.m. But he stopped by the office where he stayed for about an hour trying to handle some stuff for the business. So Dale gets home maybe 30 minutes after Glee and Tiffany do. And again, he barely gets into the house when he is ambushed by the killer and shot in the back of the head. Two days later, the housekeeper comes to clean the house. This is just a bit of background. This housekeeper had actually been cleaning the house for the Yule family for the past 10 or so years. So she knew the family very well and knew their habits very well. 
So when she rang the doorbell and no one answered, she thought it was strange because someone was usually home at this time. But she used the keys that she had to open the door, and she also thought it was strange when the alarm system didn't sound. Because in all the 10 years that she'd worked there, they'd never left the house without the alarm being on. And I think that makes perfect sense, given Dale's history of watching his boss get arrested for the smuggling of marijuana from Mexico and him believing that his family could be in danger. So I think that's a pattern that makes perfect sense. And also, they're a wealthy family. They have a lot of things of value in that home, I'm sure. Definitely. So the housekeeper and the two people that were working with her entered the home and immediately they see the home is ransacked. I mean, things strewn everywhere. And they keep on walking into the house and soon discover Tiffany's body. Of course, they're spooked and they're about to run back outside when the housekeeper sees someone at the door. And she almost runs into this person who turns out to be the neighbor. And the neighbor was just about to knock on the door because he said he'd been called by Dana, who called worried because he'd been unable to reach his family for the past couple days. So the housekeeper tells the neighbor what is inside and the neighbor also goes inside. And so once they see that this is, of course, a murder scene, they all leave the house, go to the neighbor's house and call the police. Cam, when you said that she ran out and almost ran that person over, my heart started beating because I was fully convinced she was also about to be killed by the dude in the doorway. Oh, that scared me. That scared me, girl. (laughs) Yeah, I got to keep on your toes. See, and that's just that's just the lovely storytelling you get here on the Criminalish podcast. Ooh, okay. Let me let me put my heart back in my chest. Give me a second. Right. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Okay, I'm ready. So now let's get into the investigation. So the Ewells are a very wealthy family, and violent crime in their neighborhood was almost unheard of. And when investigators were looking at the scene, they determined that Glee and Tiffany had been killed first and that the killer had waited for Dale to arrive before killing him. And even though the house was ransacked, the police thought it was staged. They described the house as overly ransacked and thought that it was done to throw police off the scent. The police actually thought that this was an execution. Why did they think this? There were still firearms in the house, and while some items were taken, they weren't the most valuable items in the house. There was one gun missing, though, Dale's 9mm. And police thought that the killer wanted them to think that this was the gun the family was killed by. Okay, my initial, my initial thought was going to be, please don't tell me that this family was killed by the gun he bought specifically to protect himself. That was going to hurt my feelings. (laughs) Well, that's what the killer wanted them to think. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So essentially, the killer wanted to set the stage as there was a robber in the house. And when the family came home, they must have spooked the robber. And the robber grabbed the gun that he just happened to find in the house and killed them. 
However, considering that the scene looked staged, the most valuable items weren't taken, there were still guns in the house, aside from Dale's 9mm. Police just didn't think that this was the case. On top of this, the house had multiple motion detectors, but these never alarmed. The housekeeper attested that, in all the years she'd worked at the house, the alarm had never been off if the family was not home. So, after the neighbor called police, he called Dana back and told him to come home, but didn't tell him why over the phone. I'm sure it was way too difficult to tell someone over the phone your entire family was killed. But instead of coming straight home, Dana called his girlfriend's father, who again is an FBI agent, and explained the situation to him. So John Zent picked up his daughter and Dana and drove them to the airport so that they could fly to Fresno. On the way there, John called the sheriff's department and they told him to bring Dana directly to the police department. When the police interviewed Dana, they found that he really wasn't that emotional considering that he just learned his entire family had been killed. On the contrary, he seemed really focused on the details and what the next steps were. And Dana was someone who, unlike the rest of the family, who usually dressed middle class, very humble, Dana was someone who would always dress in the finest suits and basically wanted to let other people know that he had money. So police described him as very put together, but it also seems like he was in a hurry and they were almost inconveniencing him. So this made Dana a suspect very early on. However, questioning Dana didn't really get police that far because John Zent, the FBI agent, was present there with him. And he would often interrupt them during the questioning to basically question why they were asking certain questions and undermine their authority. It was essentially this sense of, I'm an FBI agent, you all are police, you're below me. That's what the investigators on the case got from John Zent's behavior. That is so interesting to me because... If he's an FBI agent, he understands why they're asking these questions. He knows full well why they're interrogating him and asking him these questions. And it's interesting to me that you don't let them do their job because you know what's going on. That's very interesting to me. It was definitely him trying to protect Dana. Absolutely. And that's what I think is fascinating because why are you trying to protect him? Could it have anything to do with the fine suits he likes to wear? So what's unclear is if John was just protecting him because he knew that Dana would be the first suspect because he would have the most to gain from his family's killing. And he thought, okay, he's going to be the first suspect. I need to make sure they don't get him mixed up in anything. I need to make sure they don't take advantage of him because I actually don't think he did this. Or if John Zent was in some way in on it. When police questioned him about who could have murdered his entire family, Dana said that he didn't know of any enemies that his father, mother, or sister had. But he did ask police when they'd be done with the house so that he could make funeral arrangements for the family. 
And again, he's seeming really inconvenienced by this whole situation, you know, police needing to collect evidence, all that frivolous stuff they need to do. I mean, I'm sure it's very inconvenient that your entire family has been brutally murdered. I'm sure that's very inconvenient for you, sir. And so considering that Dana came with this FBI agent, seemed unemotional, was really only asking procedural questions, police were very suspicious of him. And it was really interesting that he came with John Zent, considering that Dana has three uncles who also live in Fresno. So that's just another note that police put in the back of their minds. Good point. That's fascinating. So let's now move on to the crime scene. When investigators were looking at the bullets that they were able to collect from the scene, they found that they had unique markings on them. Markings that indicated they'd been fired through some type of suppressor or silencer. And a silencer would make sense because there'd been five shots fired, but no one in the neighborhood heard anything. And this made police even more sure of their execution theory because what burglar would come to a house with a silencer already, especially since they're supposed to believe that the burglar killed the family with the gun Dale had in the house. So what burglar would come to a house with just a silencer? That doesn't make any sense. Investigators also tested the alarm system and found that nothing was wrong with it. It was working just fine. Interestingly, they also found these yellow fluorescent fibers throughout the crime scene, and they couldn't figure out what it was from. Another piece of evidence that they collected was an open box of 9mm ammunition. And they actually wondered whether it was the same ammunition that was used to kill the family. And after testing, they actually determined that it was. So the family was killed with the 9mm ammunition that Dale had stored in the house. They were actually able to trace the ammunition back to Dale. The box had a sticker indicating where it was bought from. And when they went to that seller, he actually had receipts from the past 10 years and was able to track down that receipt and showed that he had sold that box of ammunition to Dale Ewell. Props to the shop owner for keeping very clean records. I like that. Right. So police called Dana in for a second interview. And of course, when they asked about his alibi during the first interview, on Sunday night, he was having dinner with Monica Zent and her family. And John Zent, the FBI agent, could attest to this because he was there. So during the second interview, he actually brings them grocery store and drugstore receipts showing that he was in the Morgan Hill area that Sunday evening, which is where the Zent family lives. And interestingly enough, this time, after some thought, he actually has a couple ideas about who might have wanted to kill his father. So he mentions his father's former employer, who was arrested for drug trafficking, as well as his top salesman, who didn't really like his father. Now, when the police interview these people, his former employer actually says that he isn't surprised that Dale is dead 
because he described him as a cutthroat man who made a lot of enemies through his business transactions. So the employer wasn't necessarily saying, I'm happy he's dead. He's like, yeah, Dale made a lot of people mad through the way that he ran his business. And one of those people was also the top salesman who did say that he had a love-hate relationship with Dale because he really admired him, but at the same time, he was a hard boss. He wanted his salespeople to follow his same sales tactic of flying out to customers rather than having them come to them. And this meant that the salesperson sometimes had to fly in unsafe conditions. So he described Dale as a tough boss, but still did admire him. However, police quickly cleared both Dale's former employer as well as his top salesman. I will say, though, it is always interesting to me when I hear those kinds of descriptions of people that. Yeah, he made a lot of enemies. This is just kind of what he signed up for. And I always find those kind of statements extremely fascinating because. When it comes to a murder like this, when a person does have a lot of enemies and seemingly everybody's out to get them. It can become very taxing on an investigation because you genuinely do have so many options of who could do this. And it's always interesting to hear why people have such a hatred or a disdain for somebody else, even if they have respect for them. Cause it does seem like there was a level of, I don't like my boss. My boss sucks, but I have respect for him as a businessman. And it's just always interesting to hear people talk about that and how, and how often it does lead to a murder. It's very interesting. Yeah. And I'll, I'll clarify that the former employer wasn't saying that Dill had this coming. He was more saying like, yeah, he made a lot of people angry. So it's very possible that somebody might've gotten mad at the way he did business and killed him. However, police recognized that Dill might've had a lot of business enemies but they couldn't square that with the killing of the entire family. Because normally if a businessman like that has enemies, the person will kill the businessman and they wouldn't necessarily kill the whole family. So even though police were tracking down these leads, none of them really went anywhere. So police are back on Dana. And in that second interview, I guess John Zent thought that showing them those receipts would completely clear Dana because police know for a fact Dana was not in the house. But police were also wondering, could Dana have hired someone? So they take Dana through the house and I don't know the exact questions they were asking him, but it was probably something like, was it normal for your family to enter through this door? And what where do you think the killer might have entered from since the alarm didn't go off? And going through the house, Dana showed no emotion, even looking at the bloodstained walls. But Dana did express concern about the condition of the house. And also, he asked investigators if they'd taken anything from the house, implying that they might have stolen something. Priorities, big homie. Priorities. Because at least pretend to be emotional. 
at least pretend to be upset. At least pretend that you give a damn that your entire family was murdered. That is baffling to me. That is utterly baffling. So even though police are very suspicious of Dana, they don't want to get tunnel vision. So they continue to check out other leads. They also look into Dale's brothers and found that Dale wasn't particularly close with his brothers, but his brothers didn't really have anything to gain from his death. They also considered whether Glee's history and the CIA could have had anything to do with this. But as I mentioned earlier, she was only an interpreter, so they didn't really think that this was a lead worth following. All the facts kept bringing them back to Dana. Dana had the biggest motive. As the sole beneficiary of his parents' estate, he stood to inherit $8 million. And this was $8 million in the early 90s. Girl, that's, that's almost $20 million now. That's almost $20 million now. Yeah. Dale, so on top of owning the airplane business, Dale also owned a fig ranch, a pistachio farm, a house on the coast, a mountain cabin, and he had millions of dollars in the bank. And you know what? This is really upsetting me because I'm just thinking about a man who pulled himself up from his bootstraps, grew up during the Great Depression, and really made something of his life. And he did all of that stuff to just have it taken away like this. That's insanity. That's so unfair. And honestly, it's not like Dana is trying to keep suspicion off of him. He apparently called the coroner's office and was asking them about the autopsy and what they'd found. I've heard of family members calling the police to check in on the investigation, but I've never heard about a concerned family member calling the coroner to get a detailed report of what they found on the deceased body of their loved one. I will say, I have heard of them calling the coroner's office and specifically requesting a date to pick up the belongings that were found on somebody's body. But not about the state of their body, not about the details of the murder. It's stuff like she was wearing a family heirloom and a necklace, and we would like to pick up that necklace and have it cleaned prior to her funeral. What day can we come and pick that up? That's a very normal call to make to a coroner. Exactly. And so on top of the police, now the coroner's suspicious. <laughs> of course. Of course. What? <laughs> and Dana can't really catch a break because while detectives were at the house processing the crime scene, an old friend of Dana's comes by to talk to detectives and ask them if they considered whether Dana was responsible. Not your own friends are calling you out to officers. Oh, my God. This person said that Dana was obsessed with money and was perfectly capable of killing his entire family if it meant he would inherit a fortune. And I just have to say, I am so glad I know no one like that. 
Like imagine knowing someone and be like, yeah, I can see them killing their family. Mm-hmm. For sure. And then maintaining a friendship with them, with this knowledge. It seems like they were friends in high school. Like they were friends by proximity. Got you. Okay. But this person would not have considered Dana like a true friend. It was more like, yeah, we grew up together. Got you. Got you. I understand that. But even then, Cam, we went to high school together. If I were to look at you and be like, yeah, you remember so-and-so who used to sit in the back of the band room? I could see them killing their entire family. That's some wild stuff. Yeah. (laughs) That's a wild statement to make about anybody you know. Right. It's scary to me that you could hear the fact that somebody's entire family was murdered and your immediate reaction is that tracks. Yeah. So police are now like, okay, let's really look into Dana and dig up some more info on him. So they go to Santa Clara university to interview Dana's professors, doormates and classmates. And one professor had a pretty bad experience with Dana when he'd actually given Dana a failing grade in a business ethics class after accusing Dana of plagiarizing a paper. Not you're being accused of cheating in business ethics. Your ethics are coming into question (laughs) in the ethics class. That's kind of hilarious. (laughs) Right, right. So after this, Dana sent the professor a threatening letter where he talked about having strange thoughts because he was watching shows about serial killers and he was afraid that he was going to do something wrong. So it wasn't directly threatening the professor, but read between the lines and Dana was definitely telling this professor that he might kill him. If you don't turn Dexter off and get a life, sir. I don't know what he was watching because this was the early 90s. What what was their version of Dexter? Now I got to figure it out. I got to figure it out and I'm going to find out. And when I find out, I'm going to link it in the description box. (laughs) Right. So we can go watch it together. And on top of this, many of Dana's classmates described him as annoying and elitist. To put a cherry on top of this, turns out Dana had been telling lies about the source of his wealth across the entire campus. He'd even been profiled in multiple newspapers as a young, successful entrepreneur because he told people that he was a self-made millionaire who'd earned his money from being a stock market genius. And funny enough, he owned an airplane business selling airplanes. So Dale and Glee had actually found out about this and they were pissed. I mean, think about it from Dale's perspective. Like you said, he was born in the Great Depression. He built his wealth up from the ground up. And now he has this son that is literally just taking his work and repurposing it as his own. You could even come up with a different lie from where you got your money. You couldn't even come up, you couldn't even come up with a different company. Right. And your entitlement, the entitlement of it all, that you're just entitled to call yourself a millionaire because your father is, because your father actually worked and put his heart and soul into making himself successful. Right. And that's something that genuinely pisses me off because I feel like all too often you see 
people's kids who just very much ride out on their parents' fame or their parents' wealth and have nothing to stand on their own two feet with. And for you to just steal his stuff, I'm going to call it stealing. For you to just steal his stuff, steal his life story, that's disgusting, sir. You need help. He needs more than that. So while they were interviewing people on campus, police learned that Danny didn't really have many friends, but he did have one close friend named Joel Radovich. Joel was known as the bad boy in the dorm. He didn't dress well. His room was always messy, and he'd even been arrested for theft and kicked out of the dorms because of it. Even though Dana and Joel seemed like opposites, they were pretty much inseparable. They were very close friends. They were always seen walking around campus together, talking together, very close. So another interesting point from the investigation, less than two weeks after the murders, Dana and his uncles went to the attorney's office for the reading of the will. The assets included $3 million in cash that were spread throughout various banks and $400,000 that was going to be immediately available to Dana. However, the airplane business and the million plus dollar pension that his father had were going to have to go through a probate and then we're going to go into a trust that Dana was the sole beneficiary of, but the trust was structured so that Dana would receive the money in phases based on age. And I mean, Dev, I don't know about you, but $400,000 immediately sounds like a good amount to me. Even if you have a high spending lifestyle, especially girl, we're in the early nineties. That's approximately a million dollars today. So yes, if I got a million dollars tomorrow, oh honey, I'm set. I'm set for a cute little minute because first of all, I'm going to invest half of it and then just let that work for me. The other half. Girl, I'm good. I am good. Well, Dana was not good. Dana was pissed, apparently. And according to his uncles, he even banged his fist on the attorney's desk and asked how his father could do this to him. How could my father only leave me with four hundred thousand dollars immediately? Considering that so many people's parents die and actually leave them with debt, which also, if you don't know, don't ever pay that debt. It is not your debt. Do not take it on. And the bill collectors will try to call you and get it. Just ignore them. They'll go away eventually. Your debt dies with you. And you really have the nerve, the audacity, the gumption to not only moan about the $400,000, but to bang your fist and cause a scene. How? old are you and especially too if i had a trust of three million dollars which was going to be divvied out to me in phases girl what do i have to work for it's basically getting a paycheck it is the exact same thing right and i feel like a lot of people especially people that kill people for life insurance money don't understand that you're not going to get all that money at once most of the time they're going to pay it out to you in chunks Especially if there's a murder investigation. Well, even even aside from a murder investigation, most life insurance policies are not going to pay that out to you in a lump sum. And if they do, you're not going to get the full amount. They are going to tax it like crazy. Right. And then a lot of policies will send you a monthly payment from that life insurance policy. Exactly. 
Another reason why it is incredibly stupid to attempt to kill somebody for life insurance money. On top of the fact that if you're the beneficiary of their life insurance policy, you're going to be one of the first suspects. Exactly. So at this point, now Dana's uncles are suspicious of him. So we're at the funeral and Dana's old friend, a man named Sean Shelby, who was the same one that told police that they should look into Dana, was observing Dana at the funeral. And he noticed that Dana was very relaxed and unemotional. After the funeral, he even called Sean and told him that the police had bugged his house. But to Sean, it sounded like Dana was bragging about this. Like, yeah, like they bugged my house. Like I'm caught up in this investigation. This thing is happening to me. I don't understand how having my house bugged in any situation would be something to brag about. But well, Cam, it's something to brag about because he thinks that he's so smart that in order to get him, the police have to bug his house. Right. And Dana also told Sean about his alibi, which was having dinner with the Zent family and gave Sean some quote unquote advice on how to deal with police if he ever found himself in a similar situation. Because Dana's thinking, yeah, I, I got it covered. I showed them my alibi, showed them the receipts. I'm cleared. Are you stupid or are you dumb? Both. So Sean talks to police again, and he's telling them a little bit more about how Dana was growing up. And he said that Dana was always a rich, spoiled kid that liked to show off. In school, he would buy food for everyone in the cafeteria. And Sean said that a couple times he even hired a limo to drive him to school. Interestingly, according to Sean, one time a teacher asked the class to name the fastest way they could think to make money. Dana raised his hand and answered, kill your parents. This was in high school. I knew you were going to say that. And I just so desperately didn't want you to say that. Because, sir, why would you, in front of all these witnesses, say that? Oh, Jesus Christ. Right. So this, this was years before, but it shows you where his head was at. Oh, right. It shows that he had no qualms with the idea of his parents being killed and him benefiting from it for years. Right. So in the background, detectives were trying to track down Dana's only friend, Joel Radovich, and they were finally able to reach him via phone and were trying to set up a meeting. But on this phone call, Joel claimed that he barely knew Dana and he didn't think that he'd be of much help. But the detectives kept pushing and they could tell Joel was getting more nervous. At one point, he asked them, are you going to arrest me? But the detectives assured him that they just wanted to talk. And so Joel comes to the police station for an interview. And in this interview, Joel again downplayed his relationship with Dana. And when they asked about his alibi, he said that he was at an auto body shop and the owner could vouch for him. So as a reminder, the Ewell family was killed April 19th, 1992. By mid-May, 
Dale's brothers had put together a $25,000 reward for any info on the Yule family murders. Interestingly, Dana declined to put any money in. And this only made Dana's uncles more sure that he had something to do with it. And when Dale's brothers brought up their concerns with their father, Dana's grandfather, he also agreed that he was suspicious of Dana. And these next few facts are just going to make you dislike Dana even more than you already do. So when Dana ordered the caskets for his family, he bought the cheapest one for his sister. He also refused to pay $35 for a flower vase for his father's headstone, saying that it was a waste of money because he never planned on visiting his father's grave. So by May, Dana had also moved back into the house. And as we've mentioned in previous cases, the onus is on the family or loved ones of the victim or victims to clean up the crime scene. But Dana didn't even have the blood fully cleaned from the house. And to make matters worse, he would even show it off to people who came to visit the house. For some reason, I knew you were going to say that as well, because as soon as you said he didn't get it cleaned, my brain immediately went, oh, he likes seeing the bloodstains in the house. Yeah. So. Dana is just such a. Interesting character. And. As I mentioned before, he'd been telling people around campus the lie that he'd started and was running a successful airplane business. But with Dale gone, Dale's airplane business soon started failing because Dana had no idea what he was doing, but tried to take his father's place. You pretended to be a genius. You weren't actually one. So of course it failed. You never wanted to work hard, but you wanted all of the fruits of the labor without the labor. Exactly. And especially it is disrespectful to his legacy to let his business fall to ruin because you don't know what you're doing because all you saw were dollar signs. So back to Joel, Dana's friend. After his initial interview with detectives, Joel seemingly disappeared. And when they finally found him, Joel was actually living with Dana in the house where the Yule family was murdered. But I thought you guys weren't that close. Right. This person he barely knows. But I guess maybe after the interview, he looked him up and he was like, oh, this seems like a a cool guy. I might need to make him my new best friend. Right. And I guess Dana was in need of some friendship and allowed Joel to live there. That... That seems like the most plausible explanation for what happened there. Oh, of course. Nothing else. Nothing else could have possibly happened, Cam. So police also followed up with the owner of the auto body shop. And he said that he didn't remember Joel being there Easter Sunday. But the owner also had a short term memory issue. What the owner did remember was that Joel told him that he'd seen him on Easter Sunday. So clearly, Joel took advantage of the fact that this auto body shop owner had memory issues 
and knew that he wouldn't be able to say for sure whether Jewel was there that Sunday and probably thought he could just trick him into thinking that he saw him. Oh, absolutely. And you know what's so funny? Never try to play people with memory issues because as soon as you need their memory to not work, it's going to be crystal clear because he remembered that you told him that he saw you. Not that he saw you. That's what you get for trying to play with old people. That's what you get. Right. So by mid-July, Dana had actually hired lawyers and he said that he wasn't going to be cooperating with the investigation anymore. And according to Dana, this was because the police were incompetent. And in November, our favorite FBI agent, John Zent, had actually wrote a letter to the newspaper criticizing the police on the case and said that he was going to continue to support Dana. So detectives take a look into Joel's finances and they see that interestingly, he has no income, but is somehow taking expensive flying lessons and he'd even earn his pilot's license. And they soon found that Dana was using money from his maternal grandmother's account to finance Joel. So if you remember, Dana's mother, Glee, came from a wealthy family. And her mother essentially had money from like oil sales and stuff like that. So she came from a family with wealth. And Dana's grandmother was living in a nursing home So Dana also stood to gain his grandmother's inheritance when she passed too. But Dana was using his grandmother's money, which he managed to finance Joel. Nothing pisses me off more than taking advantage of the elderly. That is one spot that pisses me off more than anything. Bro, how do you sleep at night? That's crazy. Yeah. So in May of 1993, detectives went to Dana's dorm and told Dana that they thought Joel Radovich might have killed his family. In a move that I think we can agree every innocent person would do, Dana became upset and ran out of the dorm and sped away in his Mercedes. Police were tracking Joel's pager at this time, and they see that minutes later, Joel's pager goes off. So as I said, police were tracking Joel and he'd been under surveillance for a while. So Joel, instead of using the landline, would often go to a nearby payphone to make calls. One time, an undercover officer positioned himself at the phone next to Joel and overheard him demanding $250,000 from the person that he was speaking to and also asking advice on how to invest the money. And he was also talking about traveling the world with the mystery person on the other side of the phone. In a finding that shocked everyone, police were able to track that Joel was talking to Dana Ewell. Police also got pager records. So apparently within these pager records, Dana and Joel would speak in code. And 
they would often reference a quote unquote three shirt deal, which I'm sure all of our listeners can connect to the murder of Dana's three family members. So Dana and Joel clearly are not the sharpest tools in the box when it comes to covering their tracks. It's just always fascinating to me the way that people think they're so smart. Right. So while they're surveilling Joel, they also overhear him telling someone over the phone that he is ordering something to their house. And when they track that person down, they discover that this person is a man named Jack Ponce. And they find that Joel has had multiple things delivered to Jack Ponce. One of those was a manual that described how to make a homemade silencer. On that phone call, Joel was specifically asking about ordering an electronic lockpick to Jack Ponce's home. And detectives, of course, go to talk to Jack Ponce. And he claims that he doesn't know what the lockpick was for. But once detectives start looking into a few more details, they start to believe that Dana was planning to have his grandmother killed. That's his mom's mom, the one that he stands to inherit even more money from when she passes. He'd been taking money from her estate and he'd even had her moved from her previous nursing home to a new one that was closer to where Joel was staying. When the detectives talked to the administrator of the old nursing home, she told them that Dana had said that his grandmother could no longer afford to live at this facility. And when investigators contacted the new facility, they learned that Dana had insisted that his grandmother be placed in a room that had a door leading to the outside. So of course, now detectives are on to this and they hand out pictures of Joel to the people at the nursing home. And they also convinced the administrators of the nursing home to have Dana's grandmother move to a different room with more security. So not only have you allegedly plotted to kill your entire family, you're now going to plot to kill a little old lady who you've been stealing from anyway. And not to be that person, but to be that person, I really don't understand why people plan and ruin their lives to murder specifically old ailing people. Just wait for them to die. I just, I really don't understand. It's right. you. <laughs> I really don't understand that phenomenon. Just wait for them to die. And on occasion, do they live to be 110? Yeah. And you just got to deal with that. Just wait for them to die. I mean, it's not like he's broke. You're right. And it's also not like he doesn't have access to her money. Exactly. But it seemed like he didn't want her to keep spending that money. How dare she spend money that she earned and that she worked for and that she needs in her old age? How dare she spend that money? Right. So it's unclear when this actually happened, but at some point, investigators get a search warrant for Joel's apartment. And in his apartment, they find tennis balls split in half with the hole drilled through them. And this is very much in line with the manual on how to build a homemade silencer. 
the fibers from the tennis balls were also very much in line with those weird fluorescent fibers that investigators found all throughout the crime scene. And investigators were able to conclude that these tennis balls were used as part of the homemade silencer. So in March of 1995, nearly three years after the Yule family murders, investigators arrested Jack Ponce, Joel Radovich, and Dana Yule. Jack Ponce was arrested at the restaurant he worked at as a bartender, actually. And I'm like, oh my gosh, imagine being arrested at work. Bro. (laughs) And they said this in the show, and I just had to keep this in because it was so funny to me. (laughs) They were very much shading him. But Joel was arrested at, quote, his favorite Taco Bell where he seemed to eat three times a day every day, end quote. Oh, I love it. I love the shade. I love all the shade. And according to the show, Dana had initially fled, but eventually turned himself in. The three men were each charged with three counts of first-degree murder. Joel didn't admit to anything, but Jack Ponce, who was afraid of the death penalty, agreed to cooperate. Investigators knew that Jack Ponce owned a 9mm gun. Originally, He told investigators that the gun had been stolen, but now he admitted to selling it to Joel for $500. He said that a few days later, Joel returned the gun and told Jack to get rid of it. He also told Jack all the details of the crime that he committed in the Yule family house. Jack was instructed to get rid of the gun, so he disassembled it, threw the parts in the dumpsters, and buried the barrel of the gun in a vacant lot in Los Angeles. Miraculously, three years later, investigators were able to go to that same vacant lot and find the barrel. And in the show, they were talking about how miraculous it was that a lot stayed vacant in Los Angeles for three years. Right, that's insane. So investigators cleaned the dirt and rust off of the barrel, reattached it to a rifle, and tested it with the same ammunition that was used in the family murder. And even after three years of being in the ground, the bullets fired by the barrel had the same markings as the bullets from the murder. So now we finally get to the trial. In exchange for his testimony, Jack Ponce was given immunity, and the prosecutors of the case described it as a planned hit to the jury. They had 95 witnesses and ballistic evidence, but felt that Jack Ponce's testimony was really what sealed the deal. Jack testified that Joel had committed the murders in order to split the inheritance with Dana. Interestingly, neither Dana nor Joel testified in their own defense. Considering the evidence against them, that was in their best interest. Right. And many of the jurors actually had a hard time wrapping their head around what the prosecutors were alleging. Many of them were parents, and it was hard for them to accept that a son could plan the murder of his own parents. But they also could not disagree with all the evidence. They deliberated for 11 days. The jury actually ended up throwing out Jack's testimony because they found him to be an unreliable witness And they even considered 
whether he might have been more involved than what he claimed. On May 12th of 1998, Dana Yule and Joel Radovich were found guilty of first-degree murder. Now came to sentencing. The jury deliberated on sentencing for another three days. And even at the end of those three days, they were deadlocked. And with the death penalty, the jury has to have a unanimous vote. So the judge sentenced Dana and Joel to three life terms in prison without the possibility of parole. At sentencing, Dana still claimed his innocence and talked about how much he loved his family. So this is just another tidbit. Another person that people are suspicious of is Monica Zint. She was actually investigated, but her involvement was never proven. However, she was involved with Dana years after the murder. She was even with Dana in his dorm room when police told Dana that they suspected Joel of the murders. And she was with him when he drove off in his car angrily and allegedly paged Joel. So you would think that she'd be hearing whatever he's saying. She would be seeing his demeanor and looking at that. You wouldn't really think that, yeah, this is the, this is the behavior of an innocent person. On top of this, Monica also got over $39,000 from his grandmother's estate and $17,000 from this estate was paid to the law school that Monica went to. Now, if you want to look at this from another angle, one could say that Monica was dating a wealthy person, a wealthy man, and may not have been privy to where this money was coming from. But even though Monica didn't testify in Dana's trial, her father still did. In the end, she broke up with Dana before he went to prison and she went on to become a pretty successful attorney. And that brings us to the end of this case. I have so many thoughts, friend. I know you do. Y'all, Dev has been writing furiously. My notes. Oh, she got notes. It's a full page of notes, y'all. It is a full page of notes. We have notes over here. Okay, point number one. Honestly, I'm actually not all that suspicious of Monica. My suspicion is on her father because, again, her father is an FBI agent, as he loved to tout. Yet you're watching all of this behavior and this is an innocent man to you. Or does it seem like an innocent man because somebody who you presume to be extremely wealthy is dating your daughter? And you don't want to ruin that for her. That's how that feels to me. And that's what I have been holding in throughout most of this podcast is just feeling like he wants Dana to be free so that his daughter can reap the benefits of being with who he presumes to be a rich and successful man. Right. Because there's no way in hell you're going to convince me that Mr. FBI agent doesn't know that he's lying. I agree. And even thinking back to when the Zents had dinner with 
the Yule family and they were so sensitive to whether or not Dale thought that their daughter was good enough for Dana. It does seem like there is likely some socioeconomic difference between the two families. Not saying that the Zent family is broke because I'm sure they got money too, but they probably don't have the level of wealth that Dale Yule had. Exactly. And that's why it feels like your priority was ensuring your daughter had a seat at that table and your priority was the money, not what was in the best interest of your daughter and definitely not what the evidence was blatantly showing you. Right. And also, if we if we do want to look at the fact that Monica was with Dana when police told him that they suspected Joel and Dana drove off angrily and likely paged Joel. Even if she had seen his behavior, I'm sure that her father was also in her ear. Proclaiming Dana's innocence. Oh, absolutely. And again, why wouldn't she believe her father? Her father is an FBI agent. I keep stressing this because it is baffling to me and it is so important to how he views this case, in my opinion. Because honestly, I'm a daddy's girl. I hold my father's opinion in very high regard. So if my father was in my ear telling me, no, he's a good dude. Everything's fine. He's a good dude. Trust me, this is my job. It is my job to analyze people and know criminals when I see them. And I'm telling you, he's good. Right. I don't blame her for that. And these police are so incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. They're just they're just investigating him because he's the easiest. Exactly. Which is why I'm less inclined to think that she knew and that she would get something out of this. To me, her father is to blame for a lot of this. And whether she chose to ignore it and whether she chose to just take it in because he said it was okay, that can be what it is. But I actually am not all that suspicious of Monica. I'm extremely suspicious of her father. And I think that says a lot about him. Yeah. And some people actually speculate that Dana had been planning this for a long time. And some people speculate that he dated Monica to have access to her father. Oh, my God. Because actually... Even though Dana made a lot of stupid mistakes, he was very smart, as in he had a very high IQ. But he was one of those people that was so smart, they thought they were smarter than everyone else and that they could fool everyone else. And another thing people are suspicious of is Dana's friendship with Joel, this person who he is seemingly opposites with. And they thought that Dana targeted Joel because he knew that Joel liked the fact that Dana had money. Joel himself was a loner, was not close with his parents or family. And Joel was likely somebody that he could manipulate. Absolutely. It's 100% getting targeted because people like Dana only want people in their circle that they can control. His choice to keep Joel around was for his own benefit. He may not have even liked Joel, but, but he could manipulate him. Some people actually speculated that Dana and Joel were more than just friends because again, police had Dana's house tapped and they were surveilling Joel. 
And just observing their closeness and the conversations, police were definitely suspicious that they might have had a romantic relationship. However, this was never proven. Honestly, I felt the exact same way because when you said that he moved into the family home, that he's on the phone talking about traveling the world with him. I don't know. That whole conversation and those things are giving that y'all weren't just friends. I will say I could see Dana wanting Joel in the house in order to better control him. Fair enough. Ooh, but actually, actually, but that actually brings up another interesting point because what if Dana wasn't checking for Joel, but Joel was the one who had feelings for Dana and that's why he was going along with all of this. Could be. And he just thought on top of that, he could get some money in addition to filling his heart. <laughs> very much, very much could be. Yeah, that was, I'm not going to lie. Just like, just like how I felt about her father, that thought had been ruminating in my mind for a minute too. Yeah, and honestly, it, it makes sense that Dana could get him to do all of that stuff. I think I could see it either way, where Dana and Joel are involved romantically or Dana is just manipulating Joel with the promise of money and friendship and connection to this world society upper echelon that Joel has never had access to. Exactly. I could see it going either way and I would believe both options. Right. So I want to get into a little bit of a conversation with you. I'm gonna try to keep it quick because I know we don't have all night. But something that's so interesting to me, and I've recently fallen down this rabbit hole of organized versus disorganized crime. And police are able to determine whether or not something happened based on it being an organized versus a disorganized crime. So an organized crime, if you're telling me the story is there was a robber and the house was ransacked, things were taken. A robbery is an organized crime. People usually show up with their outfits coordinated, all black in mask. They come and they take valuables from the home. Should they plan to assault or harm anybody in the house, they bring their own weapons. Versus a disorganized crime, which usually falls within people grabbing or utilizing things from within the place that they plan to rob or do harm. So the fact that the gun was stolen from inside the house, the fact that the house is ransacked, but nothing's really stolen. These are all elements of disorganized crime of you not having a plan because like you were saying, you were trying to suggest this evidence that they had to use the gun from inside the house, which is an element of a disorganized crime, but they brought a silencer, which would be an element of an organized crime. Very interesting. Right. And one thing that was interesting from the show, police were immediately suspicious of this being a faked robbery because one interesting thing they brought up was that they could tell that the drawers in the dressers were open top to bottom. And they said, actually, robbers normally will open the drawers bottom to top. So that's just another interesting data point that investigators are able to point out whenever they're looking at a crime scene. And I also feel like Joel and Dana severely underestimated 
how much information police are able to pull from crime scenes. I don't think that they knew that police could tell if a bullet was fired through a silencer versus not. Exactly. When you don't have an understanding of forensics, I think people even in today with the amount of technology that we have don't understand just how much data and information police can pull from anywhere, from your phone, from the bed you sleep in every night to the last time you showered. Like forensics can tell a lot of super detailed depth information. Right. Mr. Jack. Mr. Jack, you, sir, are the luckiest son of a gun to ever walk this earth. Because you took apart the murder weapon. You are lucky that you also didn't get three life sentences. You are lucky that you got immunity, which I am super surprised they gave you immunity. Because I don't think you're innocent enough to deserve immunity. Immunity is for the person who knows, but doesn't do anything. Immunity is not for the person who gets rid of the murder weapon. You destroyed evidence. And potentially did more. Potentially did more. We just don't know. Right. But it seems like the prosecutors thought that their case was not strong enough without his testimony. So it seems like they were willing to take that risk. But I. But I agree. I think that he was potentially more involved than he let on and also that he got off completely free, even though he knew the details about the murder and only came clean when he felt like he might be facing the death penalty. Exactly. And at the end of the day, his testimony didn't even matter because the jury didn't believe him anyway. So he got off scot free completely for nothing because apparently your case was strong enough without his testimony because they didn't consider it because yes I'm definitely going to believe the person who got rid of the murder weapon and also stands to get either the death penalty or three life sentences is totally trustworthy and honest and is just wanting to come clean to not save their own skin no jury is going to believe that right and my final point This is why no matter how much money I make, I will always allow my kids to think I'm broke because my kids are never going to walk around thinking that the money that I worked so hard for is their money. It is one thing to be benevolent, to give your kids experiences in life and make their life easier. That is the point of being a parent in a lot of ways is to Give your children things that you did not have. And I think that's beautiful. However, comma, there is still a level of work. You are not entitled to anybody else's money, to anybody else's assets. I am giving you these things out of the kindness of my heart, not because you deserve them. And it's so sad that this whole case just comes down to a case of Dana being extremely entitled and thinking too highly of himself. Right. And there were little stories that definitely drove home this point. And this is definitely not to victim blame Dale, but it's more to show Dana's mindset. Dale's top salesperson even told police that 
he was suspicious of Dana because he knew that Dale would often cover for Dana. And Sean Shelby, Dana's old classmate, said that Dana would get a $500 a month allowance from his parents. And he remembered going over to Dana's house one time and just seeing a crumpled $100 bill just laying in some laundry on the floor. That's how little value the dollar held for Dana. There was another time where Dana had crashed a gold luxury car that he had and his father got him the same exact one so that people would not know that he crashed his car. I don't know if you remember this. That happened to a girl at our high school. She drove her Mustang off the side of the road and crashed it. Her 2016 Mustang, mind you, me and Cam graduated in 2016. And her parents bought her the 2017 model within the same week because it had more safety features. That actually does sound familiar. And your point brings up something that I find extremely sad, which is parents break their back to give their children things that they didn't have and experiences that they didn't have. And sometimes you get children who think that they are entitled to these fine things in life simply because they exist versus people who worked hard to get them there. And it's just so clear that Dale was trying to give his children a life experience and a set of circumstances in life that he did not have. And this is how he was repaid for that. And that's just sad. Agreed. Any other thoughts, friend? Nope, that's all I got. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on yet another episode. And I would also like to thank Forensic Files and the True Crime Brewery podcast for providing most of the material for this episode. If you'd like to check out photos related to this case, follow us at Criminalish Podcast on Instagram and TikTok. And we are also now on YouTube. So you can check us out there. We'll be uploading the episodes that we've been making as well as as well as many of the shorts that we do on Instagram and TikTok. Listeners, if you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a five star review wherever you're listening to the Criminalish podcast. And if you're listening on Spotify, feel free to leave any comments or questions. As always, stay nosy, my friends. Bye. Bye. Bye.